Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. If you want to discuss today's episode, drop by at Jim underscore Rutt on Twitter and comment on the episode post. See you there. (laughs) Today's guest is Charles Eisenstein. Charles is an independent thinker, writer, podcaster, and producer of videos and courses. I first encountered Charles's thinking with his book, The Ascent of Humanity, which was one of the books I and others in our circle were reading when we began thinking about what is now called Game B. In fact, one of the cool things about Amazon is I was able to go back and look and see when I got the book. And the answer was 14th of February, 2013. And I know I read it within a week thereafter. Very interesting book, which I'd recommend. Today, we're going to talk about Charles's book, Climate, a story. Welcome, Charles. Climate, a new story. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Happy to be here with you. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about climate, a new story. And it is is indeed a new story. I didn't think there was such a thing under the sun on the heavily talked about topic of climate. But before we do that, I saw a post, I think it was yesterday or maybe the day before, where you announced a big change in what you're up to in your life. You've become involved with the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. presidential campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's all about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been a, a, basically a philosopher, a writer, public speaker, et cetera, et cetera, for 10 or 15 years. And all of a sudden, through some, you know, so-called coincidences, I became an advisor to the campaign and working very closely with the candidate and the core staff. And, you know, for, for the first time in as long as I can remember, I don't wake up every morning motivating myself to do stuff. You know, I'm on a team now and, and it's just completely different. It's a completely different mindset and a different, different experience. So, but, it, but the basic, the basic themes and ideals that I've always served are still, they're still what I serve, you know, but it's just a different arena of application. And especially the climate, you know, the, what you say, a new story, you know, where I'm coming from is outside any of the easy categorizations or the easy position identities in the issue. And that is also something that I'm bringing into the campaign, not necessarily to say that that the candidate, Mr. Kennedy and I agree on everything all the time, but it's a conversation. Like everything that is in the book is also part of the conversation. So I'm happy to, yeah, so I can say that, you know, what, what I say to you in this, in this conversation right now is not representing what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says, but it is in his field. So, yeah, so I'm happy to talk about what, what you know, what my views are. Cool. Well, let's take let's take that as a given. He's talking for Charles Eisenstein, not Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I will say, I'm you know, you're holding up your hand for Robert. It's going to make me take another look at him because I got to say, my historical view has been quite negative. I don't know a lot about him, but the little I know is definitely in the oh dear, don't like that category in the slightest. I mean, he's been a very upfront and I think very dangerous anti-vax guy and, you know, spreading false stories about vaxes and autism, or at least unsupported stories about vax and autism. And also, I got to say, I was fairly disgusted by his nimbyism, as it seemed to me, with respect to the uh, offshore wind systems near the family compound in the waters off Cape Cod. And so I go, yo, spreader of false narratives and a NIMBY anti-alternative energy dude, not my kind of guy. So what am I, what am I missing there? Well, so for for one thing, you know, we, we're, we're living in a, in a political environment and and a media environment where it's all about controlling the narrative. So the, the influence of, 
industry, big corporations, and moneyed interests in politics and in the media is profound. So, you know, I would say first, actually listen to his direct words rather than what people are saying about him. You know, go to like listen to the to the podcast, what was it called? The All In podcast or or some of his interviews on there's one on CNN, one on ABC. There's, you know, or listen to his campaign speech as well. And then, you know, make your own make your own conclusions. Yeah. And I will do that now. I mean, if, if I hadn't seen you raise your hand, I probably wouldn't have bothered. But I think yeah. you're a person who's thinking I highly respect. I say, well, if Charles doesn't think this guy's, uh, you know, a conspiracy theorist and a tool for the oil companies, then uh, there may be, he probably isn't. So it, yeah. it, it, I do, I do pride myself on keeping an open mind. So I will. <laughs> he's definitely not a tool for the oil companies. You know, I mean, his his. His career was as an environmental lawyer. So yeah. he has sued pretty much every energy company, every polluter that you can think of, especially especially the coal companies and the, you know, the coal-fired power plants where he's been, you know, the reason the way that he got into the vaccine issue in the first place was because of the mercury issue that, you know, was poisoning the Hudson River and the entire the entire east you know, mostly the eastern half of the United States because of coal, coal burning power plants. That's that's what led him to look at some of the science that is. Uh, and, you know, he would say that he's pro-science, not anti-vax and and wants to bring the pharmaceutical influence out of out of science and and out of the regulatory agencies. But anyway, that's like a different topic for a different yeah. a different conversation. Yeah, let's move let's move on from that. We have a relatively limited amount of time. And I really want to get into the book. And again, let's, I'm going to repeat: climate, a new story. And Charles does now take a new perspective, at least one I have not seen before. Why don't you start off as you did quite eloquently and and kind of describe your your dive into both the conventional climate change narrative and the skeptic narrative, and then where you came yeah. out on the other side. Yeah. So there was, there was, you know, I'm not, okay. So I've been an environmentalist since the age of, I don't know, seven or eight. It's, it's a lifelong passion. And I, at first, when climate change came on the scene as a concept, global warming, we called it, it was really back in the eighties that I first became aware of it. And at first I thought, this is going to be great for environmentalism because all of the things that I've cared about that, that the, the, or most of the things that I've cared about that are, that are ravaging our environment, now we have a reason why we have to change them. Now we have a reason why it's not just you know, the, the polar bears and the, the forests that we care about, uh, it's our own survival. Uh, so we have a, a reason that we can give people who don't love nature why we have to stop drilling and mining and fracking and, you know, making oil spills and all that stuff, why we have to change our whole system. It's not just because we love nature, it's because we won't survive otherwise. So at first I thought it was that that climate change was really good news for the environmental movement. But over time, I became more and more uncomfortable with what I call carbon fundamentalism that equates every environmental problem or, or blames every environmental problem on the one thing that if we could only control this one thing, everything would be fine. So you see everything getting blamed on global warming or, or, or climate change, which blinds us to the actual workings of this biosphere, which I describe as, in a simple word, alive. This planet is alive. It has a physiology. It has organs. It has tissues. The organs are things like rainforests, like estuaries, like wetlands, like, like soil, like elephants, <laughs> whales. Whales are an organ. Anytime that you compromise one of the organs of a living body, the integrity of the entire thing is degraded. So, 
say whales, when the whales are decimated, <laughs> and really the population of whales now is somewhere between one and 10% of what it used to be, then the entire physiology of the ocean stops working. The whales no longer are transporting nutrients from their feeding grounds to their birthing grounds or from the, the depths to the surface where they can feed plankton. So plankton populations plummet and the entire food web uh, is impoverished. And, and this, this, even if you want to take it, I'm not sure like how, how, you know, receptive you are to this kind of thing, but you know, the, the, the songs of the whales that, that permeate the entire ocean and form a, like a neural net or a communication system that maybe even purposely bring nutrients from one place to another, not to mention layer mixing that whales and fish accomplish. Okay. So this is, this is just describing an organ of a living being. You compromise that organ and you have all kinds of problems that yeah, maybe rising levels of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases exacerbate those problems. But the conclusion I came to in my book is that even if we cut carbon emissions to zero overnight, if we continue to degrade ecosystems, destroy habitats, expand drilling and mining, you know, the, the strip mining, the biofuels plantations, like a lot of the things that we're doing in the name of saving the planet, in the name of stopping climate change, are actually making things worse. And if we keep doing these things, Earth will still die a death of a million cuts. Yeah, and I think that was my number one takeaway, that you know, whether carbon forcing is a dominating part of the problem or not, as you said, even if we cut it to zero, it's the fact that we're not addressing species extinction, soil, soil depletion, land use changes. And as you pretty eloquently said there, you know, you draw a picture of something very much like the Gaia hypothesis of the earth. I think you actually name it a couple of times as being at least in some residence with the Gaia hypothesis that the, the earth systems are a homeostatic system of balance that manages cycles of, you know, water and carbon and energy and other things. And this is where, where you go then one step further. And I'm unsure about this, but I'll let, you know, love, love yeah. to hear what you have to say about it, which is that perhaps the reason that we're seeing temperature rise is not principally from more carbon dioxide, but from the breakdown of the homeostatic cycles within nature. And at least one could read what you said as saying that if we restored fully healthy homeostasis to the natural world, the ability of the natural world to process and and build non-volatile carbon in the soil and in the water, et cetera, might actually be strong enough to absorb the carbon that uh, humans are putting into the atmosphere via burning fossil fuels. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but why don't, you, why don't you run with that and tell us your side of that story? Yeah, so it's so really w what happens when, as we degrade ecosystems isn't necessarily warming. It's derangement. It is these these... Uh, extremes, floods and droughts and heat waves and cold waves that that it's just like if you're if your hypothalamus and your body is is compromised, you could have you know wild temperature swings and all kinds of problems in your body. I think that that greenhouse gases make the problem worse because here you have a, a system whose homeostatic mechanisms are already weakened. And you're putting more thermodynamic energy through the system. So it, 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 I'm not saying that greenhouse gases aren't a factor. But if Earth is healthy, I mean, if you look historically, I mean, there's been times in geological history where, where CO2 levels were five or 10 times what they are right now. And, and even in the last 10,000 years, temperatures were much warmer than they were today. We know this because of things like, like, you know, glaciers are melting and they're exposing trees from the Holocene recent, you know, a few thousand, five, 10,000 years ago, tree lines were several hundred kilometers north of where they are today and several hundred meters higher than they were today. And there's, so there's many indications that, that temperatures were much warmer in the early Holocene 
even in the Roman warm period, the medieval warm period and so forth. So it's not like that, that we're having unprecedented heat. It's that the Earth's ability to handle this fairly rapid change in atmospheric composition is severely compromised. We have something like, like less than half of the mangrove swamps that we had a couple hundred years ago. We have massive deforestation. I mean, everybody listening to this knows it in the Amazon. Maybe you're not quite as aware of what's happening in the Congo rainforest. It's even worse. Or what's happened to Borneo and Sumatra. Yeah, I did not know about Borneo because last time I looked, Bor- Borneo was 90% rainforest. And now you say it's mostly gone. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm getting, maybe I'm confusing Borneo and Sumatra, but, but you know, in Indonesia, there's been horrendous deforestation, a lot of it being, you know, replaced with palm, palm oil plantations. And, and, you know, seagrass meadows, for example, is another, another huge loss in New England, it's something like 80%. And, and these feed back into carbon cycles, because when you have especially marine ecosystems being compromised or the whales no longer feeding the plankton, which feed the coccolithophores, which sequester huge amounts of carbon on the ocean floor, like, you know, everything spins out of control. So, yeah, so it's not, but just to to return to the point, the danger isn't necessarily warming. What really affects humans the most is floods and droughts. And and the biggest source, the biggest cause of floods and droughts is soil and forest and wetlands degradation. Yeah, you did a great, very interesting job of painting the picture of how forests in particular are quite important in all aspects of the water cycle. Why don't you tell that story for us? Yeah. So when it rains in a healthy forest, the, the rain is absorbed into the ground, into the aquifers, and then is brought up over time by the trees, which transpire the moisture, causing humidity, forming clouds. Uh, Not just the water, they actually help the formation of clouds because forests, uh, because the trees emit these these volatile organic compounds, which generate this, this chemistry, which creates clouds. And they and they they like these bacteria waft up from the forest that nucleate ice particles and form clouds, and those clouds then reflect sunlight. The the trans evaporation also transports heat from the surface to the atmosphere, and then when the water vapor condenses again, it releases the heat. Some of it radiates out into space. So forests actually cool the planet, not just locally underneath their canopy, but they transport heat out of, back out into space. And as they do this, okay, so so because they, and wetlands too, they absorb so much of this water, when the heavy rains come, there's not as much runoff, there's not as much erosion, there's not as much flooding. And because they're recycling this moisture back into the atmosphere locally and regionally, they prolong the rainy season and shorten the drought season. And even more than that, because this condensing water vapor creates a low pressure zone, because because, the gas is condensing into little droplets, it pulls water up from the surface and then in from the oceans. In Brazil, it's called the Flying River. The Amazon is pulling water, and the Congo does this too, thousands of kilometers from the oceans to make the rain, which is why colloquially everybody knows that the forests, like all over the world, people understand that the forests make the rain which is very different from the geomechanical view that forests grow where there is a lot of rain. No, Earth isn't just a rocky ball that hosts life. Earth is life. Life creates life. Life creates the conditions for life to thrive. And that's what we have to understand as environmentalists. 
we have to understand this principle. Life creates the conditions for life and anything that we do to serve life, anything we do to regenerate soil, anything we do to protect forests and ecosystems and species, anything we do will contribute to the vitality of all life on earth. Now, there's a data point. I wonder how this fits into your story. The eastern half of the United States was mostly denuded of its original forests, and by 1880 or thereabouts, it was 90% deforested. Since World War II and the movement of most agriculture to an industrial model out in the Midwest, the east has heavily reforested, and it's now about 55-60% forest cover. And yet, that does not seem to be doing much to the uh, the trend lines on temperature increase. Yeah. Well, so for one thing, I'll say that, that yeah, so I want to talk about forests and, and what it takes for a forest to actually be healthy. You know, the, it's not just one clear cutting in, in the eastern United States. Most places were clear cut three, four, five times. Every time you do that, the healing that is required for it to become healthy again is is magnified because you've eliminated keystone species you've eliminated like whole cycles that take hundreds of years have been truncated again and again and again one thing that so so okay so it's keystone species have in many places been eliminated they're starting to come back and as they do, the forest will regain their health. But I'm talking about wolves, cougars, beavers. Those would be three, three of the most important that, that really create tremendous biodiversity and, and alter entire landscapes. So the beavers, you know, beavers used to be so ubiquitous that like the, the, our idea of a stream through the woods almost didn't exist. You didn't have these watercourses that 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 are creating what we call channelization, that run deeper and deeper and and are you know eroding the soil. You had a necklace of pools. You had ten to twenty beaver dams per mile on these watercourses, creating huge marshes and wetlands and bogs slowing down the water so that you didn't have the kind of flooding that we have today. And therefore, you didn't have the kind of droughts that we have today. And therefore, you had much more stability. So, but it's true that the forests are growing back. They're not healthy forests yet. We're seeing because of the the simplification of the ecosystem. We're seeing a lot of tree death. The trees are weak also because of the what's happened to the water cycle. So they're susceptible to fungi, they're susceptible to insects and so forth. But it's true. And in fact, temperatures have not been rising as fast as the models keep predicting. If you look at, what is it, the University of Alabama satellite measurements, you know, they like they're about the warming has slowed down a lot from what it was in the 90s and and temperatures now are about the same as they were 10 years ago surface temperatures are are also like that and and we haven't seen the total melting of the ice caps you know the 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 temperatures have not been rising as fast as expected which in a way for me is a cause for alarm not complacency i wrote an article some years back called why i'm afraid of global cooling because here we have hitched our environmental horse to the hitched our environmental wagon to the climate change horse saying we have to we have to protect the environment because of global warming well what happens if there isn't warming that doesn't mean that we're that we're home free because as i said before the real threat is ecocide it's the destruction of ecosystems and habitats and forests and soil all over the place and if we were like, oh, yes. great, and it's cooling now, we don't have to worry anymore. We're actually making things much, much worse. 
Yeah, so, as you mentioned in passing, you know, maybe one of these super tech energy sources will come through fusion or orbiting solar or something. And in which case, and uh, what, what could happen is, as you say, people say, oh, well, then fuck nature. We got our we got our stuff. We're not going to cook ourselves. So that's going to keep going about business as usual. And you actually painted a fairly horrifying vision, which I believe you called the world of concrete and shit. Where, <laughs> Something like that, yeah. I believe that is literally the words you use, where we decide that we can just power through this. And and indeed, we're pretty good technologically and getting better all the time. But we end up in, in a world that utterly humans dominate and is, you know, a world of concrete and shit. But we may not be that far from it. I actually went and looked these numbers up this morning to make sure that I had them approximately correct. One of my uh, least favorite bits of data are these two. Humans now account for, humans and our domestic animals now account for 96% of the biomass of all mammals on Earth. 96%. Humans themselves, about 36%, and our domestics, another 60, leaving the beavers and the deer and the wolves and the cougars at 4% of biomass. Uh, So think about that from an energetics perspective, right? What about those giant herds of herbivores we used to have on our grasslands in in the Midwest and in the savannas of Africa? And domestic poultry, perhaps even a bigger surprise, now, according to the numbers I saw this morning, 70%. I've seen numbers as high as 80% of the biomass of all birds on the planet are, are chickens, ducks, and geese. So if you take those numbers, we're not that far from the world of concrete and shit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was it was this this horrifying vision where nature doesn't even exist anymore. And by our normal metrics we're still fine. Where the the homeostatic effect of of life is we've substituted that for you know, uh, geoengineering and 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 carbon. What's what's it called? The the machines that suck carbon out of the oh, yeah, air. yeah carbon sequestration yeah carbon yeah, removal yeah. yeah right and already like they're they're doing geoengineering experiments you know spraying things in the sky to reflect reflect sunlight sulfur aerosols you know aluminum particles things like that to with from this engineering mindset that that progress consists in our expanding capacity to control and manipulate the material world. It's this mentality of domination, which goes along with the domestication of all things and the conversion of nature into a a garden or into a feedlot, really. And, you know, I'm, I'm not against gardens. And I think that 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 ultimately a vision of a healthy coexistence and co-creation between humans and the rest of life is not one where we absent ourselves from nature, but it's one where we participate consciously in ecology and understand our role to be the same as actually the role of all other life which is to contribute to the further unfolding of life and beauty on this planet. And and so many of the the, um, regenerative modalities of of our relation to nature, to soil, to water, to, 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 to life, embodies this principle. Where, for example, the regenerative farmer or the permaculturist says, what can I do to enrich the soil, to make the soil more alive, to increase biodiversity, knowing that if I do that, I will be fine, that humans and nature are not separate. It's not a zero-sum game, but the, the, the richer life, the richer we are too. And this is true on a spiritual level. Where, where, you know, there, it, it's it's desolate to to look out on these monocrops, you know, and these concrete landscapes and these denuded landscapes. You know, we feel alone. We feel insecure. We, it, as compared to, to, you know, seeing foxes and hearing songbirds and and 
and seeing trees and 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 biodiversity like we we feel we feel that we belong under those Absolutely. circumstances. You know, I live on, a, as people, as regular listeners know, I talk about this from time to time, I live on a very remote mountain farm for just that reason, of which mm-hmm. about 70% of it is forest, which we're just letting grow back with occasional, very selective cutting. And we have all kinds of mammals and birds and salamanders and other amphibians and reptiles. And we were watching two snakes mating the other day, right? And it is, I mean, compared to living in even suburbia, it's like your brain just expands in a very, very different way. And I've become convinced that our urban and suburban lives are literally driving us insane and that much Mm -hmm. of the craziness that we see in the world, yes, social media is part of it, but I suspect more of it than we'd like to acknowledge is just from urbanism. Humans were not evolved to live in such concrete palaces. Whenever time I go to New York, while I enjoy kind of some of the cultural attributes, I always, after three days, kind of just get this horror living in this concrete, you know, this concrete, edifice, which is, which is Manhattan. Let's, let's though come back to the role of humans, because this is interesting. And I think there's some different perspectives on this. You actually pointed me to a book called Tending the Wild, which I've just kindled. I'm going to read it. And I have known that the discovery of the anthropologists, that the Amazon was a much more groomed garden than we ever thought before Western disease basically mass slaughtered the people living there. And of course, the uh, Eastern forest was uh, substantially groomed by the American Indians using fire. In fact, where our farm is, there were buffalo in the river valleys because the Native Americans burned off the woods periodically, but only in the valleys, not in the hills, to basically provide habitat for bison, woods bison, uh, who also went in the woods, and elk, which neither of which are are there anymore. So that's that's humans, as my good friend Tyson Yunkaporta who's an Australian indigenous person, calls humans as custodial species, where we're not like the other species. We're the first ones over the general intelligence line, and uh, probably, don't know about those uh, big whales, but at least as far as we know, we're the first one over the general intelligence line. And maybe that puts us in a different category, where it's our job to enrich nature, beautify, at, at an extra level on top, through things like grooming the forests. On the other hand, I just read a book recently and have followed him for a while, George Monbiot, or I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but he's of a different view. He says humans should get the hell away from nature and that you know we should grow our food in yeast tubs and live in high rises and give as much of the land back to nature without any human interaction at all. And I think those are two starkly different ways of addressing our overshoot. Could you could you yeah. So I'm, I'm and, and where do you fit on that between custodial species on one side and humans just leave nature alone and retreat to the smallest footprint possible? Yeah. So as you can probably guess, I'm very much on the side of custodial species. And I think a lot of the assumptions, I mean, I understand where George Monbiot is coming from. You know, it sure looks like we've just been a catastrophe, but that is a very Eurocentric or or a very Eurocentric view that takes a lot of modernity as defining of the human species. Because if you look at many, many indigenous cultures, they were not a burden to their environments. They were an asset. They actually interacted with nature in a way that that preserved or even enhanced biodiversity and, and biomass. And when they were removed through these diseases, through conquest, through colonization, the landscapes actually degraded. These were not virgin lands that the European colonizers imagined them to be. They were, I mean, you could call them gardens, but you could really, what I, the way I think of them is that they were, they were deeply symbiotic organisms of which human beings were one of the organs. I think that our that the healing of this planet is not coming through our our abandonment of it and our retreat into a high tech ultimately virtual digital world. It comes through 
reversing this long course of separation and seeing our function, seeing our destiny in very different terms than Descartes saw it to be the lords and possessors of nature, very different terms than the the anti-materialist prejudice that says that things that are away from nature are higher, things that are away from the soil are better. This is this is a a social prejudice that goes back to the beginning of hierarchical societies. You know, the king's feet were never allowed to touch the ground. The peasant, the farmer was the lowliest person. I mean, even why is low bad? Why is high good? What's wrong with soil? Like this, these are some of the deep prejudices that we have to overturn. So, yeah, I, I, I'm very much, you know, wanting to, I, I advocate a return, not necessarily to indigenous ways of life, but to translate those ways of life into the context of a mass society. And this would be a profound return and a recovery of of human nature. And we see examples of it all over the place where like farmers and ranchers who really embrace this role of, I am here to enhance biodiversity. I am here to build the soil. They're doing incredible things. Landscapes and out west, this happens like when they when they say, okay, we're going to leave this landscape undisturbed, it continues to degrade. But when you have somebody who is listening carefully to the land, who's who's in love with the land, who's dedicated to the land, who's using all of his or her human capacities and intelligence to serve the land, then you have miracles of healing. You have have places that were desertifying rapidly come back to life. You have springs that were dead for 30 years start flowing again. You have songbirds that haven't been seen in a decade coming back. It's it's incredible the the healing potential of land when we humans align ourselves with that potential. Here locally, we have an interesting guy named Joel Salatin, who's basically taking some of the things you talked about in the book about more natural style of grazing, where you move the animals every two days from, you might have, you know, 50 cattle at a two acre field, then you move them every two two or three days. And so it's more like how the actual big herds would move. And I've been to his farm two or three times about seven miles from here. And, you know, he shown, he has pictures of when his father bought it. It was an eroded, stunted grass, just nasty looking hillbilly farm, frankly. And now it's like thick, spongy soils, topsoils probably grown an inch. And he's built a series of dams in emulation of beavers and holds the water. He basically provides all the water he needs from his own hillsides, et cetera. And it's pretty yeah. remarkable. I also chatted with a guy, I think you also referenced him when he lived in New Mexico, Al, and we both lived in New Mexico, Alan Savory, who had some very mm-hmm. interesting ideas on how to restore. I think he's originally from someplace in East Africa and you know, was doing some very, very interesting work. And as you say, even in relatively arid New Mexico, bringing the land back by changing how the, the land, land use patterns are, are being applied. Yeah, these guys are both regenerative superstars. And and I was going to say something about Joel Saladin. Yeah, the soil. I mean, it's not just an inch over his lifetime. I mean, some of these guys are are building soil at the rate of almost an inch a year. I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, I, we've been building soil on our farm too. We may have built an inch and a half or two in thirty years. And well, uh, yeah, but 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 that's you know that's that's. I mean, maybe you haven't really been doing like the intensive rotational grazing and stuff. I mean, even just like the kind of thing you're doing, though, where where you're doing no harm, you know, and you have some consciousness around it, that that will heal the land, too. But there's like some of these like basically agricultural geniuses out there. Yeah, of which Joel Salton is certainly one. I can still recall yeah. it. The first time I rolled up there, I was expecting some kind of hippie dude by the way my <laughs> no. wife was describing it, patchouli oil. And nope, he's a good old kind of libertarian, right wing Christian fundamentalist. But he and yeah. his father have really come up with some amazing innovations in how they in how they work the land. And it's now starting to spread in our area. There's probably a dozen farms within 20 miles of Joel that are applying his processes, not necessarily as well as he does. It's a it's hard work. 
And one of the things that all of us who've looked at regenerative agriculture know is that we're not going to be able to live in a society where 0.7% of humans work the land. It's going to have to be more like 15 or 20% probably. Yeah, I make that point a lot in the book. It's it's not, you know, with someone like Joel Saladin and, and a lot of these folks, one, one thing that's, that on a subtle level that it's important to realize is that what they're doing is not from an industrial mindset. It requires actual intimacy with the land. It requires them, maybe they don't consciously say it this way, but it requires that they relate to the land as a being. And this is natural for, for farmers. Like you feel it's not just like some, you know, substrate where you stamp an industrial process. Like that's what they're encouraged to do by the system right now. But in their hearts, they love the land. And and that's what we have to invoke because you cannot take like what Joel Saladin is doing and rotely apply that to some other piece of land somewhere else. What you do in one place is unique to that place. And you could learn from what someone is doing, what Joel Saladin is doing, and translate that. But the way that it'll be expressed the next valley over, let alone the next state, will be different. So like the the grazing, you know, it's not, there's no formula, okay, move the cows every two days. It depends on how fast the grass is growing, what kind of soil it is, what the weather's been like. You have to you have to know your land. You have to know the cattle. You have to know the weather. You have to, ideally, this would be knowledge that is passed down through generations. Like to really farm right, you have to have multiple generations of experience and, and relationship with the land. So, so what you're saying is true because the reason that we're able to get by with 0.7% of the population engaged in farming is that we're doing it on an industrial scale. To do it right to do it the way that Joel Salatin does it, we would have to have, my estimate was about 10% of the population engaged in farming, which is what it was in 1950. Yeah, and it was like uh, 70% in 1870 or 1875, which is kind of one of the hinges of history where things started very rapidly changing right. and was down to like 50% or less, maybe a third by 1920, but and, and falling quickly. However, here's a little secret about Joel. The only reason Joel's farm works is he's got armies of interns that not only work for free, but pay him for the, for the privilege. And trying to make regenerative, ag- and I have other friends who do regenerative agriculture here in just in this area. It's a really big hotbed for it. However, every one of them has day jobs, right? You can't make a living straight up unsubsidized in regenerative agriculture in competition with Walmart. Basically, well, I, I don't agree with that because I, I, I know I know some farmers who are doing really, really well. Yeah, I, I've overstated. I, I take that back. There are I can think of a few the ones who are highly, highly diversified and work their ass off from sun up to sundown. You know, six days a week, but there are there are not many. It's well, yeah, and, and that's partly a problem of agricultural policy. Yeah. You know, the subsidies are going toward the worst practices. And, but even more, even this part of the country, things are not very subsidized. We don't do a lot of grain growing, which is the main source of subsidy. And I did look into that to see how much subsidies were changing the economics around here. But unfortunately, it's this, uh, it's the coupling with game A money on money return machine, right? It actually does turn out you can produce beef cheaper by growing shitloads of soybeans, putting the, uh, the animals in CAFOs and, you know, uh, feedlots, yeah. and then selling it at Walmart. But, but there's, there, there are, there are implicit subsidies in that too, because the people doing the CAFOs are not paying the costs of the destruction, the poisoning of aquifers and waterways through the the effluence from from the manure. You know, yeah. and that, of course, one of the one of the good points you did make is that part of the reforms here are uh, fully pricing externalities, and right. you know that is uh, of course what every business person tries to do is how to dump toxics, whether they're social or material, into the commons, right? That right. is that is the game A game, right? That's how you make a lot of money real quick. Right. And you know how you stop that in our current system is, uh, is an interesting question, but let's hold that off till we get to possible ways forward. 
Let's see what else we want to talk about. Yeah, so that's a, if we had more time, we could go more deeply into regenerative agriculture. But let's talk now about money. I know it's a deep topic of yours. It's a deep topic of mine. And one of the things I just find so important, and, and you do highlight this, is that the current money system we have was not brought down from Mount Sinai by Moses on stone tablets, right? It's a specific set of institutional choices that have been made over a series of time and have gotten locked in by things like the Federal Reserve in 1913 and Bretton Woods in 1944, I think it was, and 1971, changed to completely unhinged fiat money, et cetera. But money is, a, is first, very important, not wealth. Money, you know, if all the money in the world disappeared tomorrow, all the factories, farms, skills, cars, tractors, roads would still exist. Money is a modality for signaling cooperation around assets, consumption, savings, investment, innovation, etc. And our money system has very pervasive effects on how all these things work and what's possible and what's not. So with that, let's let's hear the Charles take on money. Well, okay, it's a big topic. I guess, you know, I wrote a book 2011 it was published called Sacred Economics and basically I ask why why is it that, that when we ask the reason for any horrible thing happening on earth that pretty soon we take it a level or two deeper. It's, it's about it's about money. Somebody's making money from the horror, from the exploitation of human beings, from the despoliation of nature. Someone's making money from it. And why should money be that kind of a force? When really, what it is, it's a it's a token of value. It's a means of exchange. It's a symbol that that society holds something valuable. It's, a, it's an agreement about value. It's a story. So why have we created a story and are living in a story that, that holds valuable the things that are not really valuable? And that is, that is stripping away everything good in the world. And what new story could we tell? So that's, that you know, led me into looking at the history of money and the the dynamics, how it's created, and, and and just how it operates in society, and basically to to connect it to you know the environment, the design of money, and it's not like some group of people came and designed it. All right, it just it evolved this way in tandem with our thinking and our mythology about who we are and what a human being is and why we're here. So the way it was designed, quote unquote, requires that it always grow because it's created as interest-bearing debt. So in order to keep pace with the growth of money, of which there's never enough, there's always more debt than money because it's, it's born out of interest. In order to keep pace with the growth of money, more and more of the world and more and more of human relationships have to come into the money economy. More and more nature gets converted into commodities. More and more neighborly relations get converted into paid services. You know, uh, childcare, for example, food preparation, even the growing of food, the building of houses, entertainment, singing songs, all these things were never once part of the economy. So this process, because of the nature of money, it puts constant pressure on us to convert more and more of nature into things, into, into money, into products. And that goes along with the basic attitude of humans are here to, to grow, to take everything over, to domesticate the wild, to conquer nature. Even George Monbiot's view is actually a distorted version of that, that we are separate from nature. That that is what progress is, to become more separate from nature. So the money system that we have now fits in hand in glove perfectly with these attitudes, with these, these myths about ourselves and our relationship to the rest of life. 
and the money system will not change until those until that consciousness changes. And the good news is that consciousness is changing. How many people really resonate today with the conquest of nature? That used to be a no-brainer. That used to be what idealistic young people wanted to contribute to. Yeah, it was thought heroic, right? To kill yeah. off all those wolves and cougars, yeah. right? There's a few ways. I mean, even in our rural county as recently as 20 years ago, if you killed a coyote, you could get your picture on, in the newspaper, right? Right. And now people go, oh, no. That's changed. And that's such good news. That's that's the 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 psychic core of the world-destroying machine has has changed. It has not, that change, that shift in consciousness has not yet manifested in our systems. This is a key thing I talk about a lot. Love to get your take on it. And that is, there's you know two parts of social change. One is personal change, you know, either in attitudes or capacities, right? But the second are the institutions that bring those things to have bearing in the world. And, you know, there have been people who try institutions first, you know, think of Lenin, right? Uh, who, oh, we're going to make a new man by brute force at bayonet point. Well, it didn't work out so well. And then there's the personal change people. If we all meditate, the world will become a better place. And yet neither of those seems right to me. That, that There's some spiral that has to work together where personal change, attitudes, and capacities are reinforced and stabilized by new institutions and new modalities, which then allow upgrading human capacities, which allow a new set of institutions that wouldn't have been possible with the old people. That's Does right. that make sense to you? And, and yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, the, the consciousness cannot be separated from the environment. The, the, our, our, our stories, our myths, and our consciousness create our systems and the systems create the consciousness. Exactly. The second part is one that I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, there's only a, a few crackpots. You're probably one, I'm probably another. They can have very, very heterodox views, despite the fact that we're embedded in, in a system which we very, very strongly disagree with. Most people are way more agreeable than us. And they go along because that's what humans were engineered to do. Crackpots like us would often be exiled or killed for challenging the holy of holies, right? But and so, and hence, so you need to build these the, the scaffolding for these better views, and that's yeah. that's what I see so much lacking in the social change world is the so because they're either focused on one side or the other rather than this balanced coevolution of the two. Yeah, there's another aspect of it I would like to bring in though, which is that this complex of consciousness, story, and system—it's a gestalt. You know, it, it goes all together. It's it's a it's a it's a coherent whole. That being, that that complex itself goes through a life cycle. And, mm. and yeah, say and more it, about it, this. Yeah. So so the consciousness and the systems they co-evolve as a whole. And what we're seeing today is the senescence, the obsolescence, the 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 infirmity of an aging system story consciousness complex. So in this moment, there is an unprecedented opportunity to change all three levels. I've been mostly working in my work at the level of story, changing the, the prevailing defining stories of our civilization. And, and, but, you know, the story it's a mistake to see the story as primary rather than the consciousness or as the system, as you, as you were saying. You take somebody from you know, a modern competitive economy and you put them in an indigenous environment and it doesn't take that long before people really start to understand gift culture and, and become a very different person and vice versa also. So, so yeah, so, so we have a, a moment now where, where it, that is ripe for change on every level. That said, the system comes last, usually. It's the last thing to change because it has so much more momentum. You know, it's, it's, it's frozen in place. And so the moment we are at now is that the consciousness is rapidly changing. We don't resonate with the values of the industrial age. 
But the institutions of the industrial age are still here. So there's a big disconnect. And we feel, therefore, very much alienated, not at home, in the world that we've inherited. Well, that's true for college-educated, upper-middle-class white people, right? No, it's uh, even more true for it's, – it's, it's true across the board. And, and in fact, in a lot of ways, college-educated, upper-middle-class white people are more invested, not less invested, in the orthodoxies and the systems that prevail. I don't know. I mean, look look at China and India. Those people seem to be looking forward to, and as quickly as they can, adopting the American middle-class way of life. Look at the the penetration of air conditioning in China. It's amazing. It went from like 1% to like 70% in 30 years. Number of cars were, you know, cars were a rare and exotic device in China 30 years ago. Now it's the number one car country in the world and accelerating. So yeah. I mean, there's a cycle, you know, you have to, I think you do have to, you know, experience the peak of separation in order to, but it happens a lot faster. Like, you know, I, I spent my 20s in Taiwan. When I first got there, my first visit in 1987, I mean, it was pretty much a third world country. I mean, it was still like the agrarian past was still very visible. And, and you know, there were plastic bags everywhere. There was no no environmental consciousness at all. I mean, there wasn't even, if you said like the word, you know, environmentalism to somebody there, Juan Bao Zhui, they would not even know what you were talking about. They were way behind us environmentally. Now they are way ahead of the United States. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know the latest, but, you know, banning single-use plastics, you know, having like citywide composting programs like they're 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 they've the consciousness has has gone through the entire arc that took many generations here in just one generation so but i, I was you know i was responding more to to um you know just the situation in this country and noticing that that the 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 shift in consciousness and ecological awareness is it's happening everywhere all at once. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about that, that, that you can feel it in the U.S., but again, particularly amongst the college educated, but perhaps other people now too. You know, there's always a, a lag. So we don't have much time left, just a few minutes. And I wouldn't even put you to this probably because you were a thinker, right? And a writer, not necessarily a doer. But now you've moved your flag over to the doers, right? <laughs> you are now a, a political hack or want to be political hack. So, so therefore, I'm going to ask you, what should we do, right? What should be done to move us in the direction that you see as moving us to a world of interbeing? Yeah, you know, in a way, I have not actually changed. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Been, I'm just kidding you. I know that, but uh, but it gives me a good excuse to ask you the question. It, it's worth saying, you know. It's worth saying that that I'm just like surprised. I'm surprised every day that the ideas that I have worked with for decades are finding a landing place in a major political campaign. It's not like I've abandoned them in order to fulfill a political ambition. Quite the contrary, you know. I, I cannot. I could not have imagined that I would be in this situation. It's profoundly hopeful for me that, like a lot of what I'm bringing to the campaign, is is ideas about unity, healing the divide, reconciliation. But also to to move to your question, what to do about it? Policies of regeneration, social, cultural, economic, and ecological. So as for what we can do, part of it is to take the, the resources away from the war machine and away from this, this distorted high-tech medicine medical complex that's absorbing $4 trillion a year. And there's another, so there's another trillion a year from, from military spending. Like what would happen if we took all of that resource even if we took half the military budget and devoted it to regenerative agriculture and, and to ecosystem restoration, this country, this, this landmass would be transformed in a space of just a few years. None of our problems are that hard to solve, really. 
the, these, these, you know, prohibitive costs of restoring the environment, they pale in comparison to global military spending. You know, all we have yeah. to do is turn our energies and our priorities and our love towards where it's supposed to be. And, and we will heal very quickly. So that's like on the meta level, you know, and I could talk more about like agricultural policies and the ins and outs of that. But, but I think, I think the most important thing is simply where we put our attention. Indeed. Well, let's wrap her there. I know you have to go. This has been a, it could have gone on for another hour easily. This has been very interesting. This is a book I would strongly recommend. I mean, it caused me to think Think different, as Steve Jobs would say, probably more than any book I've read on the topic of climate ever. And I could argue with you about panpsychism, but let's not waste our time on that. We can do that a different day. And I want to thank you for coming on the Jim Rutt Show and having a very interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Really enjoyed it myself, too. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.